Hello and welcome back to the Undercut podcast and sorry we're a little late, everything got a bit chaotic with most of the hosts being away on holiday, but it's okay, we found at least two people that are vaguely near enough to a device to record the podcast this evening and review the Belgian Grand Prix. I'm your host Jesse Billington and I'm joined by returning fan favourite on the podcast, we have the ever wonderful Jacob Phillips. How are you this evening? I'm doing very well, Jesse, and thanks for having me back. I think it's been a, a little while since I've been on the podcast. I think I was meant to appear for the Australian episode, but something happened there. So I think this might be my 2023 season debut, if I'm not mistaken. So it's great to be back. It's certainly your debut. I know we have your year-long predictions somewhere in our in our spreadsheet. So Which not... are going terribly. Yeah, you've not been truly absent the entire time, but you've been here in, in prediction at least. But yeah, it's the first time having you back on the podcast, so wonderful to have you back. And an interesting Grand Prix weekend to have you back for as well. Of course, the Belgian Grand Prix is one you've attended in person in the past. Yes. It was kind of weird to watch it on TV this weekend, actually. Every time I sort of saw a certain corner, of it, oh, I remember getting a pint there, I remember getting some treats there, you know, I remember doing this, I remember speaking to that person there, and it was almost... Almost quite sad in a way. I did kind of get, you know, the fear of missing out by not being there. So it was weird to see it on TV. I think I've got plans to return next year, although we don't know how long Spa is going to be around for on the F1 calendar, which is a bit sad. But yes, it was nice to sort of watch it from from TV. I think you can get a better perspective when you watch it on TV because you sort of know the ins and outs of the weekend. Well, when you're there, it's, I mean, you went to the Italian Grand Prix last year, Jesse. It's just a blur, isn't it? You don't really get the feel for the sessions and what's actually going on. You see cars and, you know, you're having a good time, really. You get a great idea of the atmosphere and the energy of it, but you don't really offer, unless it's a very good race circuit, you don't often have a clear picture as to what's actually happening in the race. It's very tricky to stay on top of, especially if there's terrible phone signal or you're not stood in front of a big screen. But the atmosphere is certainly one to talk about. And you mentioned about whether we're going to see Belgium for years down the line. And this was something that was put to F1 boss Stefano Domenicali on the TV broadcast. They said, we've been to Hungary and you announced this staying around till 2098 or some sort of far-fetched number that Hungary's really surprised. I was surprised to see Hungary sticking around for that long. Mm, it's quite um, surprising, and, isn't it? And they asked the same about Belgium. And he said, we're talking with the sort of uh, race promoters to try and see what we can come to. And it's interesting to see that Spa, despite being such an iconic and historic circuit, still remains an interesting sticking point. It's got that weird narrow pit lane. It's got the tiny pit garages around the back. It's all a bit cramped and a bit outdated for Formula yeah. 1. These days is essentially, or well, especially as we'll get towards, is now a four-series racing weekend, obviously with the arrival of F1 Academy on the scene that from next year. It's a packed cat schedule, and Spa almost doesn't really have the space for it. What I, what I will say is I think they've made a lot of improvements there. I saw them firsthand last year. And even on the broadcast, you can see it as well. They put new grandstands, I think, at the top of Eau Rouge and Radion. They put one down sort of the um, straight as you go up towards that. And they put um, certainly a lot of other vantage points around the circuit as well. There was loads more um, exit routes last year from the circuit because traffic's a major issue. Trying to get out of Spa was a nightmare on foot or in, or in a... Yeah, trying to get a taxi, it was you know, non-existent. So I think that... You know, Spa was announced as a one-year deal last year for this year, and it's the same again next year. Without those improvements, I don't think we would have seen Spa at all these next few years. But with the with the uh, calendar looking to expand and these countries coming in left, right, and centre wanting to host Grand Prix, it almost seems Dominicali is is very is always very coy on the subject, but almost passive aggressive towards Spa. But yet, like you say, he'll throw 
10-year deals at Austria and Hungary. You haven't seen to do as much, and they haven't made the improvements as far as. Hungary, for example, has yet to make any improvements whatsoever. We're not expecting a new pit building there, for example, until 2028. So it's all very weird, but I don't know why. The F1 just doesn't seem to like Spa. I think the fans and the numbers that we have going there are the only reason keeping it on the calendar at the moment. I think F1, F1 loves Spa, but F1 management doesn't. I think there's a, there's a big distinction there. I'll have to report back from Hungary next year. I've got it planned in that we're, uh, my girlfriend and I, plus two friends, that we're heading off to Hungary next year. We've got our Airbnb booked overlooking the Danube. So we're very much looking forward to what should be an interesting weekend. And uh, we'll see if there's been any updates, because I know Hungary itself had a bit of a rough patch for sort of fan experiences with gruff marshals and security forces it was quite interesting so it'd be interesting to see what changes have been made there that have appealed to formula one to give it such a long contract but we'll move on from long contracts to what the hell has happened and a contract that seems to have been cut very short especially in the terms of alpine where otmar zaffanauer alan permain and uh what's it Pemain and uh, is it was it fry as well i can't remember fry's first name fry's gone to williams yeah, yeah fry's left to williams well. Um, Pemain has based and Zafnau have been cut from Alpine, which was a very much out of the blue move from the Enstone based team. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we've seen, you know, to use the word turmoil, I, I guess it's been turmoil over the last few years. I think a few years ago they set a hundred race plan whereby they wanted to be challenging for race wins in a hundred mm. races. We've sort of got to that hundred races and they seem to sort of restarted it all over again, which is very weird. You've had, um, obviously, Lauren Rossi, who's been moved on. Alan Prost has sort of said some quite negative things about the uh, team since he's left. Fernando Alonso clearly wanted nothing to do with the team anymore, as did Oscar Piastri. So it was a bit of a shock over this weekend, considering we've still got half the season to go, but not a shock in the long run. I think Alpine does need some managerial changes there and to kind of establish an identity of what they really are. They're, you know, they, they speak like they want to be world champions, but on the track, they act like the midfielders that they really are. So it's it's very weird. Yeah, it was certainly an interesting one. This this all comes really um, two weeks after Bruno Famine was named as the vice president of Alpine Motorsport. There seems to be an interesting or continual shuffling of where Alpine Motorsports, Alpine the car company, all sits under the whole Renault banner, some of which is owned by um, their sort of French um, sort of parliament was or the sort of french nation really it's sort of national nationally owned um so there's lots of interesting sort of shuffling around there obviously we recently saw um what's his face from deadpool ryan reynolds ryan reynolds um buying into the team as well you can tell that i've been absolutely not so jet lagged but i'm exhausted um but yeah there's been some interesting changes coming into lp new money coming into it and new organizational structures and they say that it's they're very much um doing all of this these changes famine said with the aim of reaching of faster reaching faster the level of performance we are waiting for and you said about this sort of idea of within 100 races we want to be doing x but then they sort of hit a bit of a problem and just simply reset the counter for that hundred and make a few changes and see what happens or again. Or they'll add like 20 races on to become 120 races and soon to become 140 races and realistically 20 races doesn't seem that much to you but that's equivalent to a basically a season so it's, I think we're still 100 races off that which is what five seasons so that's not until 2020 my math is awful what 2028 something like that well, which is still two years into the new reg so if they yeah. don't nail 2026 and you've got to think that they simply won't ever do it. And They'll just start until once more. So there are many parties looking to buy into F1. Obviously, 
the Andretti party, for example, Hitech and others, you know, it's going to come to a point whereby, you know, do Alpine look to sell and would it better suit them if they did sell? This is the big question because they have been linked to providing engines to Andretti. They were sort of a name that was floated about. Obviously, Andretti have worked with Cadillac to try and sort of produce prototype engines and say, look, if we came to F1, we prove we've got the technology to do it. Um, but there has been sort of rumours floated about that there'd be an engine link there. And I think if Andretti were to come in, simply buying out another team beginning with the letter A wouldn't be too far of a a reach outside of the ordinary to happen and it certainly happened before we've seen the Renault team as we know it change its name so many times over the years with different owners different major stakeholders in it this is a team that way back in the 90s was really Benetton it had been Renault beginning to start with then it became Benetton then it went back to Renault we saw it as Lotus for a period in the early 2010s when it had Kimi Räikkönen and Romain Grosjean then it went back to being Renault and now it's Alpine this is a team that's very much a chameleon of sorts and with those changes comes varying degrees of success. When it was Renault during the early noughties, it was hugely successful with Fernando Alonso behind the wheel. It was quite successful as Lotus with Raikkonen and Grosjean. And potentially another big change, another big reworking and a restructuring could see them from some success again. But I think they've got to have some level of solidity to their whole program. They can't just keep sort of chopping and changing loads of little things. They've got to have one big change and then make that work. Otherwise, you're going to constantly be sort of putting out tiny, tiny fires without realising the bigger one growing behind you. Um, this all comes, obviously, after the back we saw Famine come into the role. Um, he'll take on the interim team principal role, while Julian Rouse, I believe his name is pronounced, uh, will head up, uh, or former head of the team's Young Driver Academy, will become the interim sporting director. It's important to remember Alpine has a huge Young Drivers Academy spanning F2, F3, F1 Academy and beyond. They recently opened up a new karting programme. They brought in um, Nicola Adams, the boxer, to come in as sort of a sports trainer for the young girls they're trying to recruit through their sporting academies they've got a huge sort of growth in their junior academies and now they've taken the guy that seems to have been doing all the legwork behind that and sort of pulled him away from it become the overall team sporting director which is a bold move and i hope it doesn't have negative impacts on the huge and very successful junior roles that it's got filled out you've only got to look at the success of jack Dewan across the weekend to realize that there is some good work going in there and it'd be a shame to fritter that away and um, yeah, sort of also look at the roles that they've, all the people they've just kicked from their roles. Zafnauer joined Alpine from Aston Martin, which we all well know. He'd been the team principal at the Silverstone team since August 2018, uh, back when the team was racing point and it became Aston Martin 2021. We all know the story from there. But prior to that, he'd been with a senior executive of that team in many of its previous guises as far back as Force India in 2009. This is an experienced man within the world of not just motorsport, but formula. No, he's got a, I think, track record. I think it's, you know, you mentioned all that there and it's, it's a shame to lose Satanau, someone who, you know, has a lot of experience within the paddock. And it's, I was thinking this weekend, what is their biggest problem? Now you think of F1 as it is now, a lot of teams benefit from economies of scale. For example, Red Bull can sort of utilise some testing parts, maybe with Alvatari and that sort of thing. Ferrari as well have engine supply. Um, Ferrari have obviously customer engines uh, with Alfa Romeo, with Haas, but Alpine don't have that. And maybe the likes of Andretti coming in will help them. But it always seems like they're going things alone, which is never really going to help you in F1. Now there's, like you say, there's a cost cap and these sort of things as well. So I think that's sort of been their biggest problem. And they haven't had a customer since Renault in 2019. So it's, I think that might be one of, or maybe not the biggest issue, but certainly one of them that I would say hasn't helped them. 
Yeah, I mean, they've struggled with, I don't want to say they've struggled with cash flow, but they certainly haven't had someone buying their units since, like you said, there was, it was Red Bull back in sort of 2019. Remember the, the jokes on Drive to Survive between um, Christian Horner and Cyril Abitabul going, oh, you no longer have a driver and you no longer have an engine. What are you going to do? And But the joke has rather fallen back on Alpine and Renault at this point because since then, Red Bull's gone on to claim two championships with their driver, a constructors championship, and Renault has been floundering really since that 2019 point. And I mean, you've got to look at Alan Permain as well. This is a, a man that has stood in great stead through over three decades within Formula One. And he's been very much with Alpine Renault, however it's been for that very much that period of time. Started working at Benetton in 1989 and then sort of followed it as it became Renault Lotus, Renault again, now Alpine. And He's had many engineering roles, becoming sporting director of the team in 2012. And Christian Horner literally sat next to um, Bruno Famine in the press conference for the team principals and remarked on Permain's three decades and says that it was a remarkable achievement and he, that he had been one of the mainstays of that period and had been there through championship years with Michael Schumacher and Fernando Alonso. He called him a hugely competent guy and said, I doubt he's going to be unemployed for too long. That's got to be pretty galling as the guy that's just fired someone who's being openly praised by the team principals. Yeah, it's. Um, oh, I was very surprised actually. Out of those three that have left there, I'm not surprised. Sat now, I'm sure, you know, as the head, that maybe sort of you know, the head goes first, and then you sort of rework things beyond that. But um, yeah, no, I was very surprised to see Pernain go. He was obviously there in the days when um, Michael Schumacher in the Benton days, as you said, he was there in the Alonso days, and he knows the team on the back of his hand. There's not a there's not a team, there's not a livery he hasn't seen, there's not a sponsor he hasn't seen, and there's probably not a driver as well. You know, he knows the ins and outs of that team. For me, he is Team Enstone, and. It wouldn't surprise me if that news is some of the teams on the paddock, maybe the ones that are up and coming, are not, you know, tapping up his phone and saying, well, let's try and get a man of that expertise on board. It's a, the words given there from Horner, it's, you know, it's a real credit to Pemain, and I think he's sort of held with such high regard in the paddock. Mm. And that sort of lastly leaves Pat Fry, who's not really part of the cull from Alpine. This was more of a poaching from Williams, which was quite interesting. And he's, again, one of those sort of behind the scenes, the sort of mechanical designers, a technical guy, the sort of the names that occasionally float to the surface. And Williams is going through an interesting shakeup at the moment. They've made some interesting steps forward with the performance of their car. They found a lot of straight line speed for certain. And I think Williams as a team, certainly under James Vowles, is slowly building towards something. And it's it's going to be interesting to see where Pat Fry fits into this for, for, for some. Yeah, it will be very interesting to see. Um, just going back to James Vowles there, can I say, I'm sure, Jesse, you watched the uh, Sky Broadcasters again, as, as did many of the other listeners, I'm sure. How insightful and sort of refreshing was the, uh, the team broadcaster when Crofty went over to him? He's so knowledgeable, he's got a great voice, and I think the team with him in charge is finally going to head in the right direction, but I don't want to skip over Pat Fry as well. I actually, funny enough, met Pat Fry this time last year on the way to uh, the Belgian Grand Prix at Heathrow Airport. He would seem like a nice chap. Um, at that point, I didn't, I sort of recognised his face, but didn't really know the ins and outs of him, did a little bit of research. And he's been, I think, at Ferrari, he's been certainly a few other teams, well, maybe McLaren back in the day, I might be wrong on that. And, you know, his resume is very, very impressive. And I think that Williams will only be in a better place with someone like Fry, so it can, it can only help them. Yeah, I mean, a quick Google, uh, Benetton, McLaren, Ferrari, a dabble with Manor, and then back to McLaren and now on to Renault Alpine. I mean, he's he's been around the sport since the late 80s. 
and is by no means a terrible sort of engineer and mechanic. And I think even he was in the Martin Brundle's race engineer for a season. So he's he's a man that knows the aspects of the sport incredibly well. And I think that would be a valuable asset to Williams. And like you said, James Vowles is a man with a great foresight for Williams. And he is just incredibly well-spoken as well. This is one thing that I've always enjoyed. Occasionally we go to we go to the pit wall, we speak to Christian Horn or we speak to Gunter Steiner. But I love it when we go to James Vowles because he actually will tell you what's going on, why the team is doing a certain thing. He has an openness about the sport and a huge engagement with what he's doing and a care for what he's doing that really comes across. And I think we're going to start seeing that a lot more in the performances we get from the Williams cars as well. So hopefully it's it's all good things in that regard, but not so good for Alpine. No, not so good for Alpine. So should we move uh, on to the next point? Yeah. The sort of speaking of Alpine, though, of course, they're now going to be expanding to a certain extent. Their um, junior academy with all 10 uh, F1 teams will have F1 academy drivers and liveries for 2024. This was part of the sort of next wave of updates that's coming to everyone's sort of new, exciting sort of lower tier of junior feeder series. Um, And it means that uh, at the moment there are five teams competing within Formula One Academy, three drivers for each, Art Grand Prix, RT Grand Prix, Campos Racing, MP Motorsport, Prima and Roden Carlin. They're all names that people recognise from Formula 3 and Formula 2. But there are a few F1 liveries in there. Certainly there's an Alpine one, to say the least, and the occasional bit of Salba. But it will be interesting to see how essentially the other eight teams are implemented across the board, which drivers they sort of pick and settle with and work to develop. But also this ties in with Formula One Academy joining the main F1 calendar from 2024. It will be following it around, same as we saw with W Series in its later years. And overall, I think that's a fantastic thing. It will be a great sort of boost for the visual nature of the sport. More people will see it, more people will engage with it. It's very much the idea that I know Ellie May loves the line of, if you see it, you can believe in it and you can sort of want to be it. And I think that is a, is a valuable asset of a feeder series, especially when you're working to encourage young women into motorsport, not just in driving roles, but engineering, directorial and manufacturing roles. You've got to have that visibility there. And I think, adding the kudos of these instantly recognisable liveries will be a huge help in that. I think it will be. And um, I think that that's certainly the presence that F1 Academy certainly needs. I mean, I think it was a real shame. I think you'll agree with me. And I know Timo certainly will agree as well. Um, It was a real shame we didn't get to see F1 Academy on the TV this year. I think that's their biggest sort of, I think that's their biggest mistake. I guess they're learning as obviously a new series, but I'd say it was a mistake not having it on TV. And I think this will um, certainly allow for a greater um, maybe reach for the championship as well, maybe bring more fans in as well. And maybe by that way, you'll get to learn a bit more about the drivers. You'll see a car, oh, look, it's a Ferrari, you know, it's a McLaren. You know, they're recognisable brands. We all watch them every week in the Grand Prix. And then maybe they think, well, let's do a little bit of research here. Let's do a little bit of Googling. Who is actually driving these cars? Which I think would be quite interesting. Um, But you say, though, it's going to be quite interesting to work out who's going to be driving those livery cars and who misses out. And will those drivers that miss out maybe miss out in another way, potentially? You know, maybe they won't get the recognition they deserve. But um, maybe on the the flip side to this, I was sort of wondering as well, let's say, for example, a, a casual fan turns on the race, for example, hasn't really watched F1 Academy before, but sees a Ferrari winning because, oh, look, it's a Ferrari. 
are they going to be is the win going to be celebrated because of Ferrari won, or are we going to celebrate the individual achievements of those women as well? Because I think that is the that is the main point of the championship. We need those women to get recognised and to potentially move up like the like the speeder ladder should work towards F3 and F2. But I think it's a good thing the teams are getting involved. To what level are they getting involved is the real question here. And I think it'll be very, very key and very good if, let's say, for example, we see a certain driver with, I use Ferrari again, obviously other teams are out there as well. Will that driver then be part of the academy or will it just be them running the livery? And I think that'll be very interesting to know going forward. But it's certainly not a bad thing that they're getting involved. Yeah, because at the moment, obviously, we've got Abby Pulling, who runs with the Alpine livery, and it's Lena Bula, who runs with the Sauber Academy livery. I think that you don't see it and think, oh, the Alpine one, certainly not with Abby Pulling, you go Abby Pulling one. I think possibly helps that she, out of some of the other drivers in that field, are is somewhat more established. She's had the fortune of running a W Series a bit more of a recognisable name, certainly amongst sort of the fields of motor racing aficionados. And there is, yeah, like you said, that risk of conflation between who's the winner here, is it the team or is it the driver? But equally, at the end of the day, if it's more eyes on the sport, more interest in it, and it does develop that greater understanding, I don't think that can be seen as any bad thing. But yeah, we'll have to, time will tell as that one pans out. But certainly, I think mix, I've come to develop a mixed opinion on whether or not we should have seen F1 Academy join F1 this year, whether or not it gave it a slightly quieter year to iron out any teething troubles was a good thing and that way it's not thrust into the limelight and immediately everyone goes oh that was pants because a few certain things failed it's had a quieter year to go this didn't work this didn't work this didn't work we'll change it and then join the big scene so it's sort of half six one half dozen the other i'd like to give it its time to properly find its feet before it's thrust into the hypercritical world of formula one i think that's a valuable thing certainly but equally it does need a bit of that attention to grow and develop so it's it's a double-edged sword in one regard. Yeah, it was um, firstly when the news came out that it wasn't going to be broadcast. I was um, highly as were a lot of other people as well, so that was a shame. But I think the world that we are right now, there are a lot of you know, sort of as a very bad thing, social media trolls as well. These women need um, you know, social media can be a very bad place, and a lot of the time I, I'm disgusted by some of the comments you see in the in the comment sections, for example. Had the championship not got off on the best foot, I think that a lot of people will be very critical straight away. And that is not what the championship needs. It's not what the teams need. And it's not what the drivers need. So I think that away from the spotlight, it certainly has helped them in that regard. It's a chance for them to find their feet. But it wouldn't have hurt them being on TV. So it's, it's a real double-edged sword. But I think that from what I've seen anyway, and it's obviously very limited, but the highlights I've seen, the word I've got out of the paddock, is that it's been a very successful championship so far. The races have been entertaining. And I think that maybe in that regard, it sort of led us on to think, well, you know, this is a little taste we've got now for the main course next year. So it's given us a little teaser and now we can expect big things next year. So I think, yes, it should have, but obviously there's a logistics thing to bring in as well. Obviously F1's in an era now, cost cap, you know, you've got the whole um, We Races 1 campaign and these sort of things where they're trying to cut down emissions and everything else, the net zero goal by 2030. So maybe it could have followed the calendar around as well and saved money that way. But I can certainly see the points from both sides. And, and it's very hard not to sit on the fence in this one and say, did they do the right thing? Did they do the wrong thing? It's a new championship. I don't want to criticise it. And if they think that's right, then I guess it's right. But mm. I think the proof's going to be in the pudding certainly next year. 
yeah, I think certainly on the, the efficiency level of it, it was wise of them to potentially partner up with more European-based races for the majority of it. Obviously, it will be joining F1 in Austin, but for the majority of its calendar, it's sort of tagged on to smaller European championships. I think in Spain, it followed the Wheel and NASCAR series, but it just means that it had a chance to get its drivers to different circuits in different conditions and offer them a lot more variety than I feel that it could have done otherwise. I think it was it was certainly cleverly balanced in the way that it was put together. And for all of its faults, which have turned out to be quite few, it's done very well indeed for certain. So optimistic moving into 2024 with those. Speaking of 2024 and some big changes, um, this one comes also from Ferrari and somewhat from Alpha Tauri as Laurent Mekis wasn't in the paddock at the Belgian Grand Prix. Ferrari have confirmed their parted ways with their previous sporting director as he moves over to Alpha Tauri to replace Franz Tost as the team's principal. And that's going to be interesting. You know, he's coming in with a lot of expertise and he's certainly been in a team that's been high up the grid. Obviously, Franz Tost was never in a team that's high up the grid. I think Alpha Tauri, I think their best finish was P6, I think, in the championship, maybe even 2008, I think it was. So he's certainly going to bring in a lot of expertise. But um, I think Alpha Tauri's a, a good prospect going forward. I see next year there's certainly going to be a lot more synergy between them and the Milton Keynes factory with Red Bull. I think they're taking a lot more parts, sort of going towards the Haas model, which in a way, Nikita would have seen or overseen in a way or certainly had a hand in with the Haas sort of model and the Haas lineup they had. So that's going to be interesting to work between those two synergies there. Um, I'm hopeful for Alcatara and I think it's a good move for them. Certainly this season, I don't know if they're just, they built a bad car or they're writing it off. I'm not too sure, but I think certainly moving forward, they'll be a lot more closer aligned to the Red Bull team and certainly moving above, say, Haas, Alfa Romeo before they become Audi because I think that would change things, but sort of move up the table a little bit. I think it's I think it's a good move for Alfa Tauri. It's definitely a good move for Alfa Tauri. Speaking to a friend who works within the factory, um, he says that it's not really a fact they wrote off this year. It's simply a fact that they built a bad car and they have very much admitted that what they designed was a very different strategy, a very different style of vehicle to the Red Bull from the senior team, essentially. And it has not had any strong points to its development and it's sort of really struggling to come to the fore. And uh, we'll certainly get to it as we go in to talk about the drivers and their performances across the weekend. That's had some interesting impacts up and down the grid, I think we can agree. But it's it's not the strongest chassis to come out of um, the sort of Italo Milton Keynes team, I think is the best way to phrase them these days. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the knowledge of Laura Mekis can bring to the team and hopefully develop it in the right direction. It'd be nice to see Scuderia Toro Rosso as they're touted to be renamed because of course they're dropping the Alpha Tauri for next year. Yeah, um, that's a very good move dropping that. I don't know if it, to me it never really worked as a team. Obviously, you know, they won a race with Alpha Tauri and arguably they had some of their most successful times in the Pierre Gasly days, but I think not many people actually know that it's a clothing brand. I mean, I certainly don't know anyone who owns any Alpha Tauri clothing and I think that Toro Rosso was iconic it's essentially just the Italian version of Red Bull. And yeah. I think it's just, just it just rolls with the tongue a bit better. I think it's what everyone remembers. And I mean, it'd be great if they went back to Minardi. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but that'll certainly be a nice touch. But yeah, I think it's certainly going to be better for them going forward. 
Hmm. I think they'd have to go and buy the name Minardi off Paul Stoddart at this point in time, but that could be it'd be interesting if they could. Um, I also certainly don't have any Alpha Tauri clothing. I don't know if you looked at it, but it is not cheap. It is not cheap and not something that I will ever look to buy. Funnily enough, I think they made the official um, F1 clothing for the F1 management. So Dominicali will occasionally be seen in an Alpha Tauri top. But apart from that, it's not a brand you see on your local high street. <laughs> no, unless your local high street is shared by Max Verstappen or Yuki Tsunoda. Um, we'll move on. We'll go back to some almost feeder series news here. Um, this is more of a footnote, just squeezing at the end. And Fred Vesti will drive the Mercedes at the Mexico Grand Prix. This is the, We haven't had a single FP1 drive yet this season. We've already reached the summer break and we haven't had one. Um, Very weird. It's very weird that hasn't happened yet. I no. think teams have been sort of tight within their battles, especially once you ignore Red Bull. It is a very close championship everywhere below it, especially around the sort of middle sector. There have been a lot of teams trying to focus on that and get focus on the main part of their mission this year. So they're finally, Mercedes have finally gone, oh, we ought to do something with that. And then remember, they've got um, championship contender in Formula 2, Frederick Vesti, and decided they should probably bang him in an FP1 seat in the Mexican Grand Prix, which, of course, doesn't clash with any F2 races. Uh, Rumour is at the moment that he'll be replacing George Russell. Yes, I think it's... Yeah, I've seen the same as you. He's going to replace Russell in Mexico, and I think that's a, a very, very good thing. Um, now, I'm wondering, well, depending on how the team view Logan Sargent down at Williams. Are we looking at a potential? Because there's no, I think I don't think there's going to be a seat at Mercedes for some time. Hamilton's obviously rumoured to sign a new two or three year deal at any point now, or certainly over the summer break. George Russell isn't going anywhere, but obviously Williams are the closest team aligned to the Brackley based team over at Mercedes. So is it trying to get him experience behind the wheel? Is it just filling their quota that they have to do by FIA regulation? Or are they looking to get him in a Williams seat? Um it's obviously those questions are still yet to be answered. We don't have the answers to them yet, but I think it's vital experience for Fred Vesti. And actually, to be fair, this year he's really impressed me, which we'll probably come on to in our um, in our feeder series roundup later on. But it can only be a good thing. But I guess it all depends on whether he wins a championship, because obviously he'll need to look for a drive elsewhere. He won't be able to stay in F2, and also depends on how Williams view Logan Sargent. Whether at the moment, I mean, he's doing all right. He's still a rookie. He's only done 10 races, although if you have at Marco, that doesn't seem to matter anymore. But yeah, it's only a good thing. But I'm surprised that it's going to take until Mexico to see a reserve driver, although there obviously is the chance for a reserve driver to come in before that as well. But it certainly seems weird we haven't had one yet. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there'll be a sort of flood of news. We often get them coming out for the US Grand Prix circuits that teams are familiar with, seem to be the ones where they roll out a, an FP1 drive for their junior drivers for their reserve drivers um it'll just be, it'll be interesting to see certainly i think we'll see again drogovic probably reappearing at that aston martin seat that will certainly be an interesting one especially yeah, he's I'm, recently been off testing at formula e yeah and he's rumored to get the seat over at andretti formula e as well i believe so that'd be very interesting to see obviously they're the team's champions with jake dennis this weekend just filling a little bit of news in there but um i my prediction is not maybe not so bold i don't know but because he's in super performer this year over in japan I think we'll see Liam Lawson in FP1 at Suzuka, potentially. I wouldn't be surprised 
I, you know, I was about to say Singapore, but I feel that's too high risk a circuit to try and put a rookie into. But certainly mm. Suzuka, where you've got a bit more space for things to go wrong, I would reckon we could see him either in the Red Bull or in an Alpha Tauri. I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in the Red Bull, just to give him a real taste of uh, why they've kept him in the team, essentially. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the uh, Red Bull. But if he's in the Red Bull for one race, it doesn't mean he can't come back and race for Alpha Tauri in an FP1 session elsewhere as well, does it? No, um, who was it who was absolutely raking in the FP1 drives last year? It was... DeVries, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was DeVries. He seemed to be doing them for McLaren, Mercedes, Aston Martin. He was all over the shop. And then, of course, he cropped up in the Williams at Monza as well for an actual race, let alone an FP1 drive. So he's, yeah, you can do FP1 drives for as many different teams as you want. Um, the reason you're kept as a rookie is until you've done two Formula One races which was the reason why in 2021 Haas never had to do an FP1 drive because both their drivers completed that by simply just... Oh, that's very interesting. Days. And that's a very interesting point, actually. So going off the point you just made there, that means that McLaren then won't have to do... or well, they don't have to fulfil one because obviously Piastri is a rookie. And then he'll, so they'll have to fill one. Um, Williams only have to fill one because... And then who's the other one? And Alfa Tauri won't have to because De Vries has already done that quota because his second race would have been in Bahrain this year. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's certainly going to be an interesting one to see who puts who in what seats as the season develops. But Fred Vesti is certainly an interesting one. I think it would be certainly a show of Mercedes foresight if we start seeing him appearing in other Mercedes-powered cars as well. That'll be the real kicker when we see him possibly appear in a, in a McLaren, in a Williams, in an Aston Martin, just to go get used to the Mercedes powertrain, get used to how it reacts, get used to how you can adjust it. And we'll go from there because we, of course, saw the very much the same with um, Nick de Vries. And then he fortuitously ended up in a racing seat, though not one associated with Mercedes. Um, and that didn't pan out brilliantly for him. But we've already mentioned that. And we'll move into the rest of the weekend where we saw on Friday the uh, first and only practice session of the weekend, followed by qualifying for the main race and uh which was it was good qualifying actually i have to say it was a good shootout we saw some good times coming through very very good qualifying um obviously practice was a bit of a washout the fia soon declared that it wouldn't be any competitive times wouldn't be taken forward should we not have a qualifying session due to conditions um but yeah it was a very interesting qualifying session as it has been this season actually i think as a general theme going across the uh across the 12 races so far i wouldn't be I don't, know if I'm, I don't know if it's maybe a controversial take, but have the qualifying sessions been better than the races this year? I certainly think they have. Um, obviously, it's not. Yeah, maybe. But um, yeah, this qualifying session was certainly on that theme. Um, Max Verstappen still at the end, though, sort of just a, he's just very annoying, isn't he? You know, we get so close and then he comes in with a lap that obviously eight tenths up on the, on the next best driver, Leclerc but ultimately didn't mean much because he had the penalty. But I think it's certainly evident that where the new rules are working is the field spread in qualifying was certainly a lot smaller here. And if it's a lot smaller here, it's a very good sign because the lap is, what, seven seven kilometres long? It's effectively in the rain, a two-minute lap. So I think mm. the gaps were very sort of a testament to how the new rules seem to be working, certainly in qualifying. And um, yeah, Ferrari were up there, which is always good to see. Um, Mercedes went a million miles off and McLaren with Piastri P5 in a track that potentially didn't suit them going into the weekend I know they set it up for wet qualifying which indeed it was but it was nice to see them up there as well 
Mm. And it was McLaren's performance they were able to replicate when it came to qualifying for the sprint, which followed on Saturday morning. And of course, they did very nicely with qualifying there, Oscar Piastri, absolutely smashing in some fantastic times. And again, proving that he was a very wise hire by both Alpine and McLaren at the sort of uh, coming into this season. Of course, only one team could win out in the end. And I think McLaren got very lucky to bag him at the, the sort of last hurdle. I said I needed to see something when he um, sort of let Alpine down. I was a bit disappointed with that. I thought that maybe he showed some immaturity. You know, getting to F1 is, is a big step in your career. The fact that they funded a lot of his junior career as well certainly meant that, you know, maybe he has to show some loyalty, but maybe the news that's just come out this weekend with the team sort of disbanding and exploding, if you like, that maybe something went on behind the scenes there that we don't already know about. So I didn't like him for that, but he certainly proved that he's made the right decision for his career. And he's sort of, you know, not necessarily done a lot of talking, but his talking's been done on the track. And I think that's what he needed to do. Mm. And um, he's really proved himself with these upgrades as well. You know, he's a competent driver. He's certainly McLaren's best rookie, I'd say, since Hamilton. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been super impressed, certainly since, you know, the Austrian Grand Prix. And even at the start of the season when the car wasn't doing so well, he was he did well as well. But uh, mm. a very interesting shootout. And I think that the, um, the shootouts format is, is growing on me slightly. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of it still, but the shortened format, you know, it's 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 a pretty heavy, um, it's a pretty manic qualifying, isn't it? You've only got I think seven or eight minutes in the first session, and with the conditions that we saw, really aided you know the qualifying. They had to be out there at the right time, and if they if they messed up their lap, then that was then buggered because there's, there was no time to get back to pits. Mm. I think especially around Spa, the sprint qualifying, where not only is the actual sprint itself a condensed form of the race, but the qualifying itself is a shortened version of what we're used to. Around a seven kilometer, two minute lap, two and a half minutes if you're on a cool down lap, that's a huge amount of time to spend trying to get your car set up when you've only got barely eight minutes to actually get a fast lap in. And we saw that sort of a few drivers fall foul of that and fail to make the grade here and there. Of course, at one point, was it for conventional quality or sprint quality? We saw Daniel Ricciardo suffer with some track limits and just sort of didn't have the time or the ability to really sort of pin it back in. So it was an easy moment for people's weekends to start falling apart in the qualifying. And that's one of the things we like about Spa is that while it does have a few track limity bits, which we've come to find quite annoying, especially with Austria not too far in the in our memories, but it's a circuit that does bite. And obviously we've seen the worst of its bite not too long ago, but in a more conventional sense, when it goes wrong for you at Spa, it can go horrendously wrong strategy-wise. Yeah, it's obviously a very hard circuit to master. And we saw, you know, how it can go so badly wrong with Stroll, you know. They made a bit of a gamble there with the dry tyres. Martin Brundle a commentary that he thought it was a bit too early, I think, and certainly proved it there by going into the wall. So I think that we'll see as we move towards Qatar and um, Brazil and other tracks like that, where, it, you know, is this, is this format going to work? Is it suited to some circuits? Is it not? I think certainly in this circuit, the format has worked, maybe because of the weather, because of the, the nature of the track. But in Baku, I thought it was a bit of a dud. So it can prove that some circuits don't work and some do. But um, one point I did want to bring up in this podcast, actually, Jesse, is the uh, is F1 sort of, and it's rearing its, I don't want to say ugly head, because it's, it's quite a controversial subject. And obviously, we uh, had the very sad news just only a month ago that uh, we lost Lana Van Toft, and that was very sad. But F1 seemed very cautious not to race when there was any rain in the air this weekend. 
I yes, this was interesting. So much the weekend was rain impacted, and I know that Corinne Chandock was on Twitter saying that sort of we have rain tires, we never seem to use them. Are we too cautious for it? And there are there are so many interesting moments where there's an, there's such a strange balancing point as to when F1 can race in the wet and when it can't. A lot of it comes down to visibility for the medical helicopter. One of the key things Formula One has in place for the safety and well-being of the drivers is that if you could not take a helicopter off in those conditions you can't go racing because if a driver is to have a serious incident and need to be helicoptered to hospital you're scuppered we saw that with the eiffel grand prix back in 2020 where we had low fog conditions helicopter couldn't take off we had no fp1 um but i think that's something that's definitely taken into account equally wet running you're not going to get any reliable wet running if you send cars out and all they're going to do is trundle around slowly even if the wet tire can disperse that you're going to have cars so disparately spread out unable to set relative lap times that there's not much point in sending them out at that point which then argues for the case of we have a wet tire but it makes too much spray it was something that was supposed to be tested at Silverstone was Mercedes and the Red Bull running essentially mud flaps at the rear to try and yeah, deflect spray down I don't think that had the desired effect. The FIA came out over the, I think it was either this weekend or the Hungarian weekend and said, we're still working on it. You know, it's, it's a prototype. We're going to look at other designs. I think Mercedes designed it. I think they're going to look at potentially McLaren design as well. And then it'll be fitted to all cars. But I don't think the test worked as desired. But um, the question is going to be, you know, how much rain is too much? Because we saw the start of the Japanese Grand Prix last year. We, you know, we started without a safety car. We had a full standing start in pouring rain. The visibility was awful. But was it worse in Spa for the start of the sprint race? Potentially not. I don't know. At what point do we think, well, what's too wet? What's not too wet? Are we suddenly going to red flag every single race that has rain in the middle of it? And I think that certainly we were cautious in qualifying as well. I think certainly the start of the sprint qualifying, we could have gone way, way sooner than we did there. It was it was almost, you know, verging on, well, it, was, it wasn't near dry tires. It was still very treacherous. But we've, we've gone qualifying, even in recent times, in worse conditions than that, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. Mm. I, it's one of those things where you want there to be racing, you want there to be the action of drivers dicing around in the wet, the cars are on edge, it's a far more demanding challenge to drive a 1,000 horsepower car on sort of cut slicks in the wet. That is, that's what we want to see with, our, with Formula 1, we want to see drivers being pushed to the limits in all kinds of conditions. But equally, I think that it's fair to have some reticence when it comes to expecting them to go out when there is a very high chance of death it's one of those things that's sort of famed by sort of the quotes of Nicky Lauder and then used in the film Rush where they go every time we set off in a race there is a certain percentage chance that at least one of us will die and I don't think that when it rains that accepting that that risk is even higher still is acceptable especially in a modern society where you don't expect your sports people to die for your entertainment it's almost very gladiatorial at that point and there is a balance between the risk that I think Formula One has to take. Yes, motorsport is risky. It is dangerous. That is the inherent part of it. But I think when you can easily mitigate certain elements of that risk, it's probably sensible to do that, especially at a circuit that in such recent memory has had such a fatal track record and such a dangerous run. Even when it comes to non-fatal crashes, you've only got to look at the damage wrought to Lando Norris's McLaren a few years back. You've only got to look at the W Series pileup going through that exact same section of track. But Delano Vanderhoek, where it suffered because not necessarily because of 
uh, road coming up. He was way down the Camel Strait when his car span and someone just didn't see him for the spray and the rain. These crashes happen because we go racing in treacherous conditions. It's an accepted part of the risk, but it's whether we demand people to take that risk or, or not, I think. And if you're the race director, do you want to be the guy that says we're going racing and then someone loses their life on your watch? I, I don't blame Formula One for being too cautious. No, um, it, it's certainly a, certainly a shame we are in this position. And like you say, I think if the race director made that call and some, something did happen as tragic as that, then I don't know how Formula One could come back from it in this day and age. Obviously, we've had the uh, sad loss of life for Jules Bianchi. You know, we have um, um, certain safety protocols beyond that. Obviously, the halo came in as a result of the crash with Henry Surtees back in 2009. But um, I don't think it would survive another incident like that. Obviously, we've had the uh, sad incident of Spa only a month ago, and I think potentially that is a reason why we were potentially a little bit overcautious this weekend. But yeah, like you say, it's um, I think being overcautious is better than being you know, more risky, let's say. But I think I, I think there's some good news to come out of it in a sense that FIA are looking at these mud flats. I think once we get these sorted, we might be able to train slightly better in slightly worse conditions, for example. Mm. Pirelli basically said the wet tires are useless because the performance differential between that and the intermediate is ridiculous, that the teams will never use them. And we can only use them in the spray the FIA deem is too dangerous because it's going to be chucking it down. The FIA won't rate in that. So I think there's some conversations to be had. Had it been a slower circuit, we might have gone racing a little bit more. Obviously, we saw Monaco this year. It chucked down during the middle of the race. And Hamilton said, this is really dangerous over the radio. But there was not even a, a, a doubt in my mind. I don't know. We didn't even have a talk of a safety car on the commentary or whatever else. So what I was going to say to you, Jesse, is not going to say true. Was the problem we saw this weekend? Is it an F1 wide problem that we'll see at all circuits, or was it more of a spa tailored problem whereby we know it's a dangerous track? It's one of the classics. We've got the chemistry, straight, we've got a rouge radion, and we've got the low hanging trees where the, where the mist and the fog and the rain, you know, it just traps the rain and brings it back down to the surface. Is it, a, were they being potentially more overcautious because of spa as well, potentially? I think it is very much a problem we see so much more with Spa. Like you said, with Monaco, it's such a low-speed circuit. You don't get quite as intense a level of spray coming off the circuit, though cars obviously aren't circulating at such a high speed. Wheels aren't turning so high at such a high speed. You're not clearing the water at that same rate, thus creating that huge amount of spray. Whereas you've only got to look at Spa and the speeds that you're doing down the Camel Strait, you've only got to look in the dry, the speeds that the cars were achieving, either coming along the Camel Strait, going up to Le Combe or coming into the bus stop chicane, they're touching sort of nearly 200 miles an hour, even more if they've got DRS over if they've got a tow. These are incredibly high speeds. And at that point, your braking distance and your thinking distance are incredibly short. And equally, the energy that you're imparting through tyres into water and creating that spray is just naturally going to be higher. It's something that's going to plague higher speed circuits. And Spa is arguably one of the highest speed circuits on the calendar, short of probably the main straight down Baku or possibly the back section of um, Jeddah, but Jeddah is unlikely to suffer from spray. And I think with good road drainage, Baku isn't exactly going to suffer the same issue either. So yeah, it's one of those things that's very much a spa problem. And like you said, you have the trees that crowd the camel straight. It traps that spray, it traps the rain, it traps the mist that builds up. It's sort of a self-perpetuating problem that gets worse and worse and worse until it gets better when the sun comes out. It's 
it's a problem with spa that is so inherent to the circuit i don't think you could change in the same way that someone could say make the nurburgring safe go make nordish life a safe and you'd have to level huge hills you'd have to push barriers miles back from the circuit it would be impossible to do without inherently ruining the circuit and i think possibly employing a bit more care a bit more reticence and a bit more sort of reluctance to go racing at spa in dangerous conditions in wet conditions is great because it means that we can slowly change our view on spa i don't think we'll ever look at spa in a different light post delano post um antoine hubert i don't think we'll ever look at it differently post those crashes certainly but we can certainly look to adapting how we use the circuit in a safe manner that's for certain yeah, and I think that is a very key point there to take away. Had there been a, another crash this weekend, I think that would have been potentially, and I think you'll agree with this as well, Jesse, that would have been the end of Spa. Had there been a, you know, had we, for example, gone racing in the sprint race with all that spray, a tragic thing happened to a driver. I don't think we'd ever, there wouldn't be the, I don't think there'd be an excuse to bring Spa back to the calendar. I don't think we could mitigate that anymore. I don't think that we could say, you know, I think you'd have to change a rouge, which would need destroy the the character of the circuit obviously with radion as well and it'd be a shame to lose it that way so you know i want spa to stay i'm sure you want spa to stay and all the listeners at home want spa to stay as well so i think it's it was potentially the right decision it you know i'd love to see them go racing in the rain it's what you know i was brought up on it's what we see on tv all the time but i think times have changed slightly and until we get the mud flaps until we work out a visibility problem and the tires work in with the with the wet tires as well and you know, F1 as a, as a whole to come together and think, how can we go about this safely? As safe as possible. It's never going to be fully safe, of course. They made the right decision this weekend, although I'm going to say they made a wrong decision with the start of the sprint shootout because that was a, too much of a risk. That was too risk averse. I think that was yeah, that, that, that was the of task far too long. That could have probably been triggered a little earlier. We could have gone a bit racing a bit earlier. I think the wet tyres would have certainly handled it and very quickly the intermediates would have been able to take over once some laps have been run with cars on the wets. I think, again, you asked the question of, so it's the, oh, well, we can't change the circuits. Hockenheim Ring and Spa both changed drastically from how we used to race there to how we see them as motorsport circuits to this day. But equally, at the same time, circuits do get preserved and still raced on by other series you look at Nordschleife is still used for major racing series but ultimately formula one has outgrown those circuits you look at the huge difference in the power the speed the energy that a modern formula one car carries compared to a car from the 1960s 1970s 1980s where they're smaller lighter and traveling nowhere near the same speeds all of a sudden you add another 25 miles an hour to the top speed and you crucially take that car up to the direction of a ton almost doubling its curb weight all of a sudden the momentum and the energy that's being carried in that object is going to be enormous and those crashes are going to be bigger and are ultimately going to be worse i think you've got to take into account so many different aspects when you go oh historically we used to go racing around the bigger spa in the wet and worse conditions with narrower tires that produce less spray at slower speeds on a circuit that was vastly different to how we see it today it's... and also you've got to maybe think as well in those days the performance differential between the cars was vast you know some people had a three lap lead for example with the circuit so big you wouldn't have seen another driver the problem we have today with the you know is the is the ground effect rules it's the big diffuser on the back of the cars and the fact that they run so closely behind each other now is you know it's the main main problem there of course is the visibility so yeah it's a very different time and i think that they like I think the final point to say is I think they made the right decision. 
and but until they come to a, a decision you know on the visibility problem for example we have to keep making these decisions but at certain other tracks maybe we can make different differing decisions and i think if the race director, like we saw in Formula E, for example, this weekend, if the race director is open, honest, and has communication with not only the teams, the drivers, but the fans at home, can let us know what the problems are and why we can't go racing. Hey, look, guys, we've analyzed it. the safety cars being round. Uh, we've got level intensity, three rain above us. It's meant to end in 10 minutes. The visibility will be next to nil. I think it's too dangerous. The teams, the team principals agree. I think that'll be better in our living rooms think actually do you know what it is too wet out there they've made this decision why have they made the decision okay let's go forward with that and how are we going to get the restart because we saw it at Monaco last year for example we got no communication whatsoever for the start of the race it was delayed by an hour and then they said that the electrics went out which to me you know didn't seem didn't seem very true at all so I think the communication here will be the big thing I think the Scott Elkins race director for Formula E did a great job this weekend and if we had that in F1 I think a lot of these problems would be solved ironically the ultimate solution to not being able to see through spray is a greater clarity from race direction the solution to not being able to see is simply clarity and i think that's a that's a good point to sort of move on to the next topic with which is the actual sprint race itself where we obviously we said we saw a rain affecting the it with a delayed start and then pretty much everyone immediately boxed for inters it was um very much akin to hungary 2020 I want to say, um, where of course we saw Bottas go bowling and then in the time that it took to clear that up, the track pretty much dried and everyone pitted on the formation lap for in, for the slicks, apart from Hamilton, he lined up on the start on his own. Um, we saw something akin to that this weekend with the sprint, with half the drivers coming in, teams were very reluctant to double stack because of how bunched up the field was. So essentially it was the front half of the field by and large, went in and pitted for um, inters, and then they pitted the second half of the field. And this gave us an interesting battle for the podium of sorts. This is something that Oscar certainly remarked on when he got to it. He was like, it's not a podium, but it's a celebration of racing, I guess. Our first top three or whatever, exactly. Yeah, it was certainly an interesting one. But the big takeaway from the sprint was the collision between Sergio Perez and Lewis Hamilton. They made contact coming through, I want to say Stavolo, definitely down towards the final sector of the circuit. And um, Hamilton was handed out with a harsh penalty. Was it five seconds, I believe? Yeah, it was handed a five-second penalty. And I've, I've watched a few sort of different vantage points of this, this collision. And I've seen an above shot. And it is harsh, but... This view maybe changed my mind a little bit. He does seem to have a lot of room there on the outside and he does make a move towards Perez and it obviously causes damage. And then obviously Hamilton's, or should I say, sorry, Perez's race was over at that point. But, you know, I think it comes down to consistency thing. Again, we've seen other examples of this throughout the course of the season. I think we saw George in, um, in Baku in the sprint race make contact with Max. Obviously, Max's race was not as destroyed as bad as Perez race was but at the same time sort of hindered him and I don't remember George getting a penalty it was, it was I guess a fairly similar incident but I think that Hamilton did have enough room around the outside obviously the conditions played a part it was sort of very greasy track they were both on inters at the time um there was a gap Hamilton went for it it would have it's a harsh penalty but I think with the modern standards that we see now with F1 I think it's very much in tune with a lot of other penalties we've seen as well so I understand why they gave it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. It's a very hard one to get your head around because I'm still very much on the fence with it. But Hamilton didn't seem too bothered, which suggests that 
maybe he was slightly at fault. I'm not sure. Or maybe that's because it was a sprint race. And he didn't, you know, it doesn't have a massive effect on his weekend anyway. So, yeah, slightly harsh, but I understand on sort of third, fourth, fifth viewing why they gave it. But it wouldn't have been given 10 years, if I put it that way. Yeah, I think it was maybe a little bit harsh. It was definitely, to a certain extent, from some aspects, causing a collision. You've got, when you see the sort of hand movements, obviously trying to catch a car in those conditions, it's a slightly changing track. You've got tyres that are not really keeping up with the surface below you. You're going to have to make steering inputs. And again, if you send it through a narrow gap on a slippery circuit, when something does go wrong, ultimately on your head, be it if you put your car in a position where otherwise you wouldn't necessarily be, I do think that that's a fair way to apportion the blame. Um, and at the end of the day, it's such a small points advantage from the sprint that I don't think it's going to hugely impact either driver's results from the season. Uh, although we'll have to wait and find out on that front. Um, moving further on into the weekend, uh, we obviously have the Grand Prix where we famously saw some fireworks at turn one. Angry Carlos Sainz versus Piastri. Ellie May has written in the notes, slightly at fault, question mark. Um, I'm going to say I don't think so. I think Piastri was well within his rights to sit on his line and go for the inside at the source. I don't think he was anticipating Carlos Sainz locking up and really yeeting it for the apex of the corner. That was an odd move from Sainz and one that was certainly a little over-exuberant and one not becoming of a driver of his experience. Yeah, it was... Um... It was what I call a classic Lassos turn one incident spa. We've seen a few drivers, you know, Signs tried to say that we've seen loads of drivers try to pull it off and they never have been able to. But Signs, if you look above the, uh, the overhead shot, you've got Hamilton here. And Signs has got quite a lot of room between him and Hamilton. So he could have he could have gone more towards the left and Piastri could have come around the outside. I think Signs would have seen him in his back mirrors, come across, think, ah, you're not getting through, mate. Close, you know, close the space behind him and made sure effectively that he didn't let him through. Obviously, Piastri wasn't going to back out. You know, he's hungry. He's trying to prove things. He's a rookie. He wanted to get through that gap. And I think at the end of the day, they were both, well, Signs was being a bit stubborn. Piastri was being stubborn in the sense of, I'm not going to back out. You're not going to bully me, mate. And they just come together and both their races are ruined. But, you know, I think... What Signs came out and said, sort of belittling um, Piastri, was a bit harsh, saying, I've been at Spa seven or eight years. I mean, Piastri's not exactly not raced at Spa as well. I know he hasn't been there for years, but, you know, he would have raced it in the simulator. He's a very astute driver. I think that Signs just threw his toys out the pram and thought, you know, it was, yeah, I think it was a bit harsh from Signs. We've seen him make, you know, very silly mistakes at Turn 1 in, in, in the past. He came back on the circuit in Russia and sort of ploughed it straight into the wall and then came back on the circuit. So, I don't know. It was a bit, it's a bit sour grapes there from Sainz. I didn't exactly like his um, his response, but Piastri was well within his rights. You know, Piastri at that point wasn't going to give up. Once Sainz came across, there was only going to be one thing: collision at turn one, and they're both out of the race. So, yeah, that's what happened there. I think there's not really much more to say apart from that. Yeah, equally, there wasn't anywhere else for Piastri to go other than lay on the anchors and hope no one rear-ended him. Really, he had sort of no moves to make he had to either go with the flow of the traffic he couldn't go right because that's where the wall is of the source and he couldn't go left because that's already where Carlos was and that'd simply be causing a collision akin to Hamilton and Checo in the sprint and otherwise his only option was backwards on the brakes which isn't what you do as a racing driver so no and it's very dangerous at Spa we've seen obviously how how many instances we've had there if you back on the brakes we've seen Hulkenberg come over the top there in the past we've seen was it a lot 
as well. Obviously, the game's closure on crash in 2012, so it would have been worse for him to put on the brakes. I think we would have seen a domino effect going backwards, causing even more carnage. The safest, ironically, it took him out the race, but the safest thing was to commit to that corner. Obviously, he's made contact with the outside barrier there. It's ruined his suspension. He's obviously parked up in sector three, but yeah. Um, I didn't like, you know, signs. Come on, man. That was a bit. That was a bit. A bit harsh on Piastri. I don't think Piastri would be too bothered about it. Obviously, drivers say and do a lot of things in heated battles. I'm sure signs might go away over the summer break and regret what he said. But yeah, it was a classic turn one incident. Spa signs had a bit more room. Piastri wasn't going to back out. Signs wasn't going to back out, and the end result was two cars out of the race. Really, mm, I think signs certainly could have been the bigger driver coming out of that, but failed to be, which is a bit of a shame. Um, moving on through the race, there was a few other interesting bits to talk about, but crucially, obviously, Max came through from P6 for an easy win. Checo really didn't put up much of a fight there. I don't know if this was a team orders thing or simply a fact that Max caught him as a sitting duck coming down the camel straight. Max had a huge closing speed on him and just seemed to have an absolutely fantastic drive coming off the top of Radial, and there was nothing Sergio could do to put up a fight against that. Um, Ferrari do seem to be coming back a bit stronger, though. They had in Charles Leclerc's case, a fairly decent weekend, able to fend off Hamilton from behind and just about stay in check with Perez ahead. Um, Though they have seemed to have worked on tyre life a little bit, which is great. They weren't degrading their tyres immediately and were able to make them run a little bit longer through the sessions. Mercedes dreaded um, balancing has returned, however, uh, Lewis Hamilton did say in some of the conferences afterwards, that the car wasn't feeling quite as settled and a bit of that vertical motion, the porpoising, which we'd seen them try to counter over the previous seasons or so, has made a little bit of a return. And Aston Martin made a decent show of things, I want to say. Certainly not necessarily within qualifyings or sprints, but within the main Grand Prix, they had a bit of form return. That was um, sort of touching on the first point there with Red Bull. I think that it wasn't team orders, but more Checo, knowing that there's no point in fighting Max. I think we've seen the performance differential between the two drivers this year sort of grow in disparity between Miami to now. Perez knows he's not fighting for a championship, and let's say, for example, he accidentally blocks Max, they cause contact, and they're both at the race. Perez essentially is fighting for his future at Red Bull, certainly for 24. He knows there's no point fighting him, and essentially all Red Bull expect of him is to become is to be P2 at the end of the race. He lets Max go through, he's not fighting for the win, he gets P2, and Red will go away very happy so there's really not much point in fighting which for us as a viewer is very very sad and for me it's one of the reasons why I actually said to Timo off you know off, off air the other day I said to him just message him after uh, after Spa I said for me this has been the worst start to an F1 season I can remember from the start of the season to the summer break and I think that certainly hasn't helped the season but yeah there's no point in, in Sergio really fighting and if he can get P2 or you know, the odd podium here or there towards the end of the season. I think that'll stand him in good stead to be in that seat for 24 with Ricardo sniffing around potentially. We don't we need to see what happens there. Obviously we need to see more from him and no if Yuki falls as well, why can't we see Yuki in that seat? So uh, that's a very interesting point going forward. Um Ferrari, their tire life seems to have improved as you said. I think they've certainly worked on their um worked on their tire life which is good. Certainly a circuit around spa which can chop their can chop tires quite badly. The straight line speed's going to be good, so we know it's going to work for them there. Mercedes was strong-ish. I mean, Hamilton seemed to be flying throughout some points of qualifying, but in the race had no answer for Leclerc. And it's disheartening to see with all their updates that the porpoising or bouncing, as they described, has come back. So was it Spa Pacific? Uh, Pacific, sorry. Um, with the long straights, who knows? We'll see. 
And for me, it was good to see um, Alonso back in P5 as well. That's a much needed result for a team that is literally sliding down the table. And Alonso said he wanted a, a, a season full of podiums and there wasn't going to be another race without a podium. But unfortunately for him, we've been four or five races without a podium now. So, yeah, it's not great for Aston Martin, but that's certainly sort of arrested the slide a bit. I need to update my big chart, but I know that Ferrari are rapidly catching Aston Martin very much as they've sort of been... Aston Martin over their engine supplier and Ferrari are catching them a bit now. So it's, I don't know if they've completely caught them off the back of this weekend, but they're certainly catching them for it to be clear. Yeah, I think it's something like six or seven points and you've got to think once we go to maybe Monza, for example, the straight line speed there, that Ferrari will be ahead of Aston Martin, you know, firmly once we get to September and October. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how that battle plays out as the season develops on. Um, McLaren, as we've already mentioned early on, went the wrong way with their setup, but did recover. Obviously, they were sort of very much set up for a wet race. They had the higher downforce setup on the car, which works great when you're combating wet conditions and you've got a bit of spray when you're trying to get your tyres stuck to the road and get them a bit of adhesion. But as soon as it dries out, all you're doing is giving yourself a bit of extra drag. You're burning through your tyres quicker and you are an absolute sitting duck on the straights. We very much saw that. Regardless, Norris came home with a relatively impressive P7, all things considered, and is a great way to cap off his first half of his season, a season that's been one of two or a half of a season that's very much been a half of two halves. Um, he sort of had a, a fairly torrid start to the season with a car that was a bit recalcitrant and struggling to stay combative against his teammate. And they've both taken huge leaps forward in the latter stages of um, first half of the season. And it's been a remarkable turnaround, even with the wrong setup, that McLaren still looked very competitive. That is a very good sign and the fact that Conjure Circuit, which was earmarked as one of their weak ones, I think in sort of opposite to that, I think Zandvoort will be very good for them. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do there. But he was falling back through the through the, uh, down the timing screen. You know, at one point he was sort of at P18, 19. I thought, you know, the best thing to do was sort of park up in the garage and think, you know, save the engine, save the engine for another day. But um, I don't know how he ended up in P7. It was one of the most interesting things about the race, I think. Um, I don't really see how we got back up there. Sort of, they made that sort of soft tire work. Certainly, when it started to rain, I think the soft tire is the best tire to be on if you're not going to move to an intermediate because it's got high grip. Yes, high grip. Yeah. Yeah, it's softer. It's yeah. a bit grippier, and it's a lot easier to generate the heat from. So it's able to sort of keep keep its surface in an operating window. And again, when we had that slightly damp spell in the middle of the race. The McLaren was just able to really make its tyres work a bit longer. And equally, because they could put him on the slightly harder compound, as soon as it got a bit of heat in it and it had the softer sort of working surface, um, he was able to really exploit it, even if it didn't have necessarily as much lateral grip as the soft or the medium, the hard with that added downforce from the front and rear wings did prove to be quite competitive on the McLaren. And they made it work. Certainly an interesting pit strategy from the team was able to recover his race. And it was it was good to see a team, not just the car or not just the driver, really operating at a high level. And that's reassuring moving forwards that they'll be able to start chasing down the front field. It's certainly the best sign that McLaren could have given from this weekend that they're competitive at Silverson, they're competitive at Budapest, and they were competitive here in Spa. Three very different circuits. I think Zandvoort with their I think there's more of a medium to high speed set up there with the corners. It's certainly going to suit them like we saw in Silverstone. So I think they're going to be strong there. Once we go to Monza, it's more straight. So I think that'd be one that certainly doesn't suit them. So don't expect anything there, but you never know. Lando might surprise. And then the rest of the season, certainly Suzuka, 
um, maybe even Qatar with those um, high-speed corners would definitely suit them as well. So I think it's been the most refreshing um, story from the season. It hasn't provided many good news stories, really. So, you know, I think everyone at heart's a bit of a McLaren fan deep down. It was certainly the team that I rooted for when I was younger, when they were sort of gunning towards the championship with Lewis. But um, yeah, I think that it was a, a great weekend for McLaren, given the circumstances and the fact that the car was essentially, like you say, set up for Friday and Saturday, where it was wet. And Sunday, we didn't see the rain really trouble. So I think that was the best he could hope for. And mm. it was just great to see him come home with the P7. The crucial thing is that their car has come good and they know why. We've seen other teams previously have their cars all of a sudden come on form and they don't know why. They don't know what they've done that's made the car work. Whereas McLaren seems to have a very good handle as to what they've done to the car that's worked and how to keep working with that, which is a very reassuring sign as opposed to a team going, oh, it's good. How do we keep making it better? Because we don't know what we did. They, they've got an, an ability to replicate what they've already done so far. And that is... <laughs> something that's going to put the wind up Ferrari and Aston Martin as the season develops. If and I think quite them. interesting on that point, actually. I think that they're one of the only teams that, that are in that mindset where they know what's going right. I think, obviously, Mercedes are P2 in the championship. But they, you know, they'll be the first to say they've not been impressed with themselves this season and expected more. Whenever Mercedes, for example, do something right, even Aston Martin to some extent now, they don't know what's gone wrong with the upgrades. They can't sort of pinpoint where to go right again. And Mercedes, whenever they have a good weekend, you know, Hamilton was on pole, for example, in um, in uh, in Budapest. But you know, we come back to another race, albeit a different track, but they're still going over the old problems they had, be it porpoising and bouncing again. So McLaren seem to be one of the only teams, and obviously Red Bull, Red Bull are Red Bull. They know exactly what they've done right there. But Alfa Romeo in qualifying as well in Budapest, you know, they were P five and P seven, and they seem to have no idea how. You know, they were bemused. I think one of their engineers said, "Yeah, we're not really sure how we got there, but here we are." Um, so. Yeah, it's, I think that's really helping McLaren. It, potentially, could they overtake Aston Martin by the end of the season? They're only less than 100 points away. So we'll, that might be quite something quite interesting to watch out for as we head towards November. Tight finish, certainly, towards the end of the season. Working our way down towards the sort of tail end of the point scoring, I think it's very much worth mentioning Yuki Sonoda. And I'll touch on him again when we get to winners and spinners to obviously spoil something there. But... That was a fantastic weekend from Yuki Tsunoda, especially if you go back and watch his start in the actual race. It was phenomenal. He gets off the line brilliantly. He sees the chaos up ahead, but he spots a gap. And obviously with Piastri forming a bit of a rolling roadblock, which holds up some of the Mercedes and the other drivers around him, Yuki spots a gap on the run down through sort of uh, Rouge and into Radion. He knows there's a gap there and he knows that he can just throw his car through it and has faith that it'll stick. And it's a ballsy move and he makes up a hell of a lot of places off the start. And with a fairly middling strategy, he's able to just about hang around in the points and forms a little bit of a roadblock at some points, but is able to defend from cars coming from behind and clings on to get a point finish. And I think that is a, a valuable thing indeed for Alpha Tower as they try and continue to prove their relevance in the sport. And equally as Yuki fights to prove that he deserves his seat. I must say it was a very, very impressive drive from Yuki Tsunoda. I'm not necessarily his biggest fan. I'm, you know, arguably more of a Daniel Ricciardo fan. I've always been a fan of his. So it's disappointing not to see him get the point. But I think, you know, all hats off to Yuki Tsunoda there in a car that really isn't made for the top 10, is it? That's only their third point to finish of the season. Yuki getting all three of those. Uh, you know, he's running as high as P6. I think it was, you know, lap in, in sort of the first 10 laps. And to come home with a point with 
a lot of cars staying in the race. And that's the thing as well now. You know, we haven't seen a lot of unreliability, which can make for a boring race. And it's a lot harder for those teams at the bottom, be it Williams, Alfa Romeo, um, Haas, for example. It's a lot harder for them to score points. And for Yuki Tsunoda to score a point at a track that probably doesn't suit them. And I think, Jesse, you'll agree with this. It's probably fair to say that not that any track on the calendar doesn't really suit them, barring maybe a couple of discrepancies here and there. So I think it was a, a very good drive and certainly one that will... Um, keep um, Red Bull bosses on their toes because obviously Daniel Ricciardo's come back. He's a hot shot Daniel Ricciardo. We all know what he's capable of. He's a race winner. He's been in the Red Bull team before and I think that was a very much a statement drive from Yuki and I think we're going to need to see more from him if he wants to get the Red Bull seat. You know, is that on the cards? Is Sergio going to leave? We don't know yet but I think that there's nothing more to say from that apart from well done Yuki Tsunoda. It was a fantastic weekend from him and one that he needed, but certainly more so one that the team needed. Mm. He's, I like Yuki Tsunoda as a driver, and there is something very interesting in the way that he's developed over the past season, certainly that sort of period of time when been coached by Alex Albon stood him in very good stead and gave him a chance to really refocus his efforts, not just as a Formula One sports person, which he's sort of really kicked on with his trainer, but equally the way he drives and the way his mentality when it comes to driving is in a huge increase. So it's he's a driver to keep an eye on, in my opinion, and it'll be interesting to see what Honda does, because he's obviously got fairly close ties to Honda, and as they move to Aston Martin, quite what they plan to do with him and the longevity of Aston Martin's current driver lineup and the implications of that. Um, the next thing we really want to mention as we come out of the race is Williams, who sort of come away from the weekend disappointed that they didn't score points, despite the fact that Albon had at times been running fantastically, as had Sargent as well. I think it's, it's fair to give Sargent a little bit of kudos uh, points, but I think Albon had a very good weekend, but it was just unfortunate that the car wasn't quite as competitive as it really could have been. No, it's um, no spoilers, but I might touch on some of the uh, some of this in my spinner section but um it's certainly a race that Williams would have come into come into the weekend and think you know this is one we're going to get points you know Zandvoort certainly won't suit them but Monza and Spa would have done and for them not to get any points at all is a disappointing and b I'd say a very big testament to how they've improved as a team you know years ago if you come away from weekend saying Williams will be disappointed not to score you would have said mm, I'm not so sure you know they'd be very lucky to be up in those positions but I think it's you know real kudos to them how they've improved under Vows. Albon certainly brought a level of expertise to the team that potentially before then they didn't really have and I don't really know actually I'm gonna have to go back and watch it because I'm still a bit baffled by what actually happened because at some points, you know, I think it was lap three or four, um, Albon overtook Stroll and then the pace differential between the two cars was ridiculous. But towards the end of the race, they just weren't there. And we didn't really see them on the, the world feed towards the end. I don't really know what happened. Was it a dodgy pit stop? Was it a tyre strategy? Was it the change in conditions? Or was it something else? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you saw something there, Jesse, but I don't know why they didn't perform how they should have done towards the end, but it was certainly disappointing. I think they were overusing their tyres. The reason they seemed to have such fantastic pace was they pitted a bit later than everyone else, blew through their tyres, then had to make an additional pit stop. I think that's exactly how it came through. So they, they proved the car has the pace, and we saw the car having that pace in Canada. We've seen the car with that pace at other circuits. It can do it, but 
they haven't finessed how to get the pace out of that car without it becoming at the detriment of other aspects, either having to run higher wing angles, having to chew through tyres more readily, having to possibly overfuel it because they know that you just need to keep it pinned all the time to get that performance from it. So it's it's a car that Vowles and the technical team are race by race coming more closely to understanding. I think that's, if anything, a very valuable thing. I have no doubt so that um, Albon and potentially, you know, even Sargent, we saw the score points there last year. I have no doubts that Williams, obviously barring instance and whatever else, that Williams will score points in Monza. I think that that will be one that they earmark for potentially even a, you know, we've got top seven in Canada, potentially even like a top seven, top eight. I wouldn't be surprised to see Williams really gunning for a top five there. I think that's perfectly within the realms of what that car is capable of and certainly what Alex Albon is capable of with that car. It's It sounds far-fetched, but I reckon it is very much doable. So it's 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 on the horizon, that greatness from Williams. I think we just need a little bit more time to come from it. Again, good weekend. I think it would be unfair to gloss over Alpine as well because I noticed they don't crop up in winners and spinners. Alpine had a pretty decent weekend, despite what we mentioned about them at the start of the show with their huge sort of shake-up of team principals, bosses, managerial staff. The drivers and the mechanics and the sort of gang at the track put on a fantastic show. Obviously, we had Gasly coming home on P3, obviously, wasn't he, in the sprint, which I think is for him at Spa, a circuit where he lost his close friend Antonio Bear. We obviously saw him hosting that sort of a moment for Antonio Bear where he and a load of the other drivers and sort of team sort of uh, managers, team staff from across the grid and across the classes of racing came together. They ran a lap of the circuit. They stopped at the top of uh, Rouge and paid some genuinely touching respect to him and Manuel Correa. It was an incredible weekend and a great one for Pierre Gasly to prove that in that Alpine, when it's set up right, when everything is running right, he is a very talented racing driver and can provide the results you need, but you need to give him the appropriate tools to do it. And again, we saw the same with Ocon. He came home P8 in the race overall. It's another four points to add to Alpine's tally. It just keeps them in that sort of midfield fight. It stops McLaren from getting too far away, I think. And yeah, a, not as valuable as a weekend as it could have been, but equally not the worst given what's been going on there. I think it's no, I, I think they'll put it down as a good weekend, although I'd like to say that McLaren are now out of their reach this season and they're going to be in a sort of treading water in a no-man's land. But weekends like this certainly won't um, harm their cause. That podium, quote-unquote podium, obviously the top three in the sprint is something that I personally didn't expect, certainly around this circuit. And I think, like you say, it was a very touching moment for Gasly. He always seems very emotionally charged when coming to Spa, for the, obviously for the right reasons. He sadly, tragically lost his friend in 2019. Um, but yeah, coming away with, I think, a total points haul of six, seven, I think well over 10 points this weekend. Uh, 10 points for Alpine. They certainly will. Um, yeah. 10 points for Alpine, there we go. 10 points this weekend is something that they will look on as a success, I think. It's not obviously where they want to be because obviously they talk about challenging for regular podiums, but you know, in the here and now, we can only really talk about them in the present state. I think that that was a good result for Alpine. And like you say, yeah, a result they desperately needed, not only for the points table, but certainly more so, I'd say, for the confidence and the new staff coming in say, look, this is the base. This is what we can do, guys. Let's work on it for the rest of the season and beyond because where the proof of the pudding is going to be is how they build on this for future seasons because for me, this season is nothing more now than a glorified test session. Mm, it's 
there's elements to the season that aren't going brilliantly for Alpine, but I think when they can come away from a weekend with points, it proves that what they've done so far has been uh, good enough, certainly, and worth worth giving a little nod to here and there. So we'll move into our winners and spinners, and I've already hinted at my winner, Yuki Sonoda. I do want to mention in one point that on the Sky broadcast coverage, Ted said that Yuki is no longer the lead driver at Alpha Tower. It was sort of a speculative thing he threw out, and I think that Ted is wrong. I love Daniel Ricciardo, don't get me wrong, he's a funny guy, really interesting character, really sort of bubbly, vivacious, outgoing, it's fantastic. But Yuki knows that chassis, he very much knows that team, and I think that he doesn't want to be overlooked as the junior, as the little guy, and I think he's going to carry that forward very much with sort of a vim and vigour to really motivate him on through the rest of the season and prove that there is a reason why he is in Formula 1 and there is a reason why he was picked to join the Red Bull Academy. And this weekend, one point, it's not a great number in the overall scheme of things when Max Verstappen's holding in 25 points. But when that one point can represent your your career on the line, I think it is hugely valuable. And he did incredibly well this weekend. It's uh, safe to say, Jesse, you're a massive Yuki Tsunoda fan. Um, but I wouldn't say that he... I don't... It's, it's, a, it's a real tough one, this. I think that Daniel Ricciardo was brought in to be the team leader due to experience. I think that team certainly needs a bit of guidance. I'm not saying Yuki can't do it. And that would be me doing Yuki Tsunoda a great disservice because he has proved this weekend that he's a great driver. But potentially they can club their experience. That you know, Yuki, like you say, knows the team. He knows the staff. He knows how the car handles. He knows how it handles on its worst days. He knows how it handles on its best days. And crucially, on its worst days, more importantly, because he knows how to adapt to that. But Daniel Ricciardo brings with him race-winning experience. He knows the Red Bull family, and he's you know he's not. He's not sort of, um, you know, he's had the experience at a lower team as well. He's with HRT in 2011. And I think that experience that he has, he's been on the grid now for, you know, 12 years. I think that will count for something as well. But if Yuki Tsunoda continues to perform like that, and we don't know how long Daniel Ricciardo is going to be the team for, then there is nothing to say that Yuki Tsunoda can't be the team leader. And I would love to see Yuki Tsunoda be the team leader in, fu- in future. I think he's a... He's a good driver. I don't know if he's going to have the qualities to challenge Max at Red Bull. But then again, I don't think many drivers can. But at the same time, he certainly has made a very good case to himself this weekend. He's definitely sort of pinned his colours to the mast and shown exactly what he's made of, which is something he needed to do. But again, it's that sort of... What's Daniel Ricciardo's purpose at AlphaTauri? We don't truly know at this point. Is he there to lead the team? Is he there to develop the chassis for when they put Liam Lawson into it next year? What's what's really going on behind the scenes? And at this point, it is, as much as I love to stoke up the Yuki Snowden hype train, so much of it is just speculation, I think. It's, 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 it's worth I mean, if he was to retire, I'd, you know, I'd be happy in the knowledge that I'd love to go and try his restaurant as well. But hopefully we don't get to that point so soon. But um, yeah. I think that I had Daniel Ricciardo. What was he doing at Red uh, My belief was he was brought in to sort of analyze how Perez does, and if Perez isn't capable of you know, continuing in 2024, then Daniel Ricciardo was a ready-made replacement. But the problem you've got now is, I think that if they if they wanted to put all the eggs into the Daniel Ricciardo basket, if Yuki Tsunoda does continue for outperforming, then surely you've got to say, well, Yuki Tsunoda, you're moving up to the Red Bull team, so. It might have a few unintended consequences. I don't know how the Red Bull family, for example, view Yuki Tsunoda moving up and whether they definitely want Daniel to move up. But it's certainly going to be very interesting these next 10 races, how it all plays out. 
Mm, well, quite where it all comes from, we'll, it'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, in the meantime, though, I'll quickly fill in with Ellie May's winner, which was Pierre Gasly, who I think we've already sort of touched on the, the strong points, especially across his weekend, and quite how much this weekend will have meant to him. I want to go, though, to your winner, Jacob. My winner, I have chosen... Let me just get my notes up. I seem to have forgotten who my winner is. My winner was... Who did I put down as my winner? Did I put Norris down? Piastri, other McLaren. Piastri, I put the other McLaren down. Jesus, it's been a long race weekend. I wasn't even there. I have chosen Piastri because, first of all, he got that, well, not quite podium in the in the sprint race, but for me, he's certainly solidified himself now on the grid and it was a very much statement weekend for him. He's had, a, I wouldn't say he's had a few critics over the start of the season, but I think that the cobwebs have certainly blown off. Obviously, he had a year away from racing as well. And he's really shown himself to be, you know, not just a good driver, but urging on the side of a great driver. And certainly to succeed in F1, certainly towards the top teams, you know, Red Bull are in the future going to be looking for another driver in, the, in that car. McLaren, um, what was it, McLaren, sorry, Mercedes, for example, Ferrari. And if you know, F1 believes what it's going to do. We'll have more top teams up there. So Piastri really showed himself. Obviously, he was unlucky as we touched on in the race, but it was, you know, very much a 50-50 incident there. But I think that was his his um, his landmark result. And I think he's only going to build on that. And it's not like he's been not close before because he could have got a podium in Silverstone and certainly in Austria as well. So it was finally nice for him to get that podium. Not that it's a podium, but I guess we can call it a podium. It was a nice haul of points. And certainly on a, and he's, you know, he's not raced on the track, I think, since 2020. He wasn't racing there last year in 2021. Formula, was he in Formula 3 at that point? Formula 2. Formula 2 didn't race in um, Spa in 2021. So, you know, three years away from the track around, a, you know, certainly in those conditions as well, is very hard. That is why I've chosen him as my winner this week. That's a, that's a fair argument for him. He's definitely, he's driving the drive of, a driver to keep an eye on certainly there's going to be something big come from that him down the line and quite what it is it's tricky to say at this point in time it's very early but it'll be he's I think, been that one to keep an eye on the way his meteoric rise through the feeder series came and then the fact that they're so early he's been able to go not necessarily toe to toe with Lando Norris but keep Lando Norris driving honestly certainly is a skill and yeah it's it's impressive without a doubt. I'll stick with you then and we'll move to your spinners. I've gone for, we touched on quite great detail a couple of minutes ago, I've gone for Williams simply because it's a track they would earmark for points, it's certainly one that I expected, certainly Albon, maybe not Sargent, but Albon to score you know, not necessarily a hat for because it's very competitive, but certainly a, a spattering of points, maybe two or three over the course of the weekend, and they came away with absolutely nothing, so we're going to tracks apart from Monza that won't suit them as well. So they've missed their big opportunity to distance themselves between Aston, um, Aston Martin, sorry, Alfa Romeo and Haas down in that sort of lower echelons of the grid. So, yeah, a little bit disappointing. And I think it's a great testament, as I've said, that Williams now come away from a weekend not getting points that they feel they should have done because it just shows the progress they've made. Very much. It's... Yeah, this isn't so much a sort of a kick em because they haven't done well. It's a kick em because we've seen that they can do well this season and we expected better sort of thing. It's that we know you're good. Why weren't you this weekend? Very much so. It's that sort of you've set your own bar a little high in this regard. Um, Ellie May has settled for McLaren as her spinner. And I think that's 
possibly a little scathing. I can understand why you'd be disappointed with McLaren's performance this weekend, especially coming off the back of a double po- weekend, two weekends of podiums. But um, yeah, I think possibly not reading your own weather data well enough to get your car set up, especially when no other team on the grid made that error of going, or that gamble, certainly, of going for the wet setup across the weekend. That sort of feels like a bit of a rookie error for a well-established team, I can possibly... But I, I do feel that they sort of saw the weather forecast and thought, well, if it was going to be dry on the Friday or Saturday, they were going to be nowhere anyway. So they saw the rain as their strength. They knew it was definitely going to rain on Friday or Saturday. That was pretty much a 100% chance for the sessions. So they focused on that, got the points in that, and any points they would have gathered from the Grand Prix, which they did with Lando in seventh, would have been a bonus. So I think they actually did the right thing. Mm. I'd argue that the gamble they took, though big as it was, was very much the right gamble. Um, it would been interesting to hear Ellie May's thoughts on that one. Um, and equally, we'll wrap out the Williams and Spinners with my spinner, which is Carlos Sainz. And I know we touched on it when we started talking about the Grand Prix. And honestly, he should have should have had a better start to that race. And I think just a little over-exuberant, he saw the McLaren ahead and thought, oh, I'm going to have him. It's Oscar Piastri. I should be able to have him. And just overdid it, unfortunately, and hasn't been able to deal with the consequences of that, which is a bit of a shame. He needs a long summer break. Go to beat some. I grab a cocktail, put your feet up and come back. Much rested in four weeks' time, I think. Just needs to chill out a little bit. Mm. We'll move to the predictions review. Uh, obviously, we had Fraser Ford from Inside F2 on last weekend, and he has earned himself one point for predicting Charles Leclerc coming third in the race. Um, it's written as no points for me because I couldn't be bothered to predict anything. I was on holiday, but I did put something on the big master spreadsheet. If I go to race by race predictions, I can tell you exactly what I put. Uh, Verstappen pole and Verstappen win, so I get two points there. I sort of gambled a lot on my McLaren getting this weekend right uh, with Norris and Piastri filling out the podium. They did not. Uh, fastest lap was Verstappen, uh, which he somehow didn't get. Hamilton snatched that from him in the dying moments of the race. And my madcap prediction was the sprint will be interesting. So I want to at least put it to you, Jacob. Do you think the sprint was interesting this weekend? I am a massive critic of the sprint or Plenty put was a massive critic of the sprint. It's growing on me. But I came away slightly satisfied with the sprint, a little bit disappointed that we couldn't get going earlier, potentially understandably, as you touched on. And if I've come away slightly entertained from a race, I would call it interesting. Certainly, we had the gamble with, obviously, staying on wet tyres, Max stayed on wet tyres for an extra lap. There was a whole Piastri and uh, Max battle that he had. But... Yeah, I, I would say I would if I was the adjudicator here and the referee, I would I would give you that point. I think that the sprint was slightly interesting, and that's coming from a harsh critic. So the sprint was interesting. But I'll put this to you, Jesse, before we wrap up. Have you enjoyed the first half of this season? Oh, okay. Because I'm weirdly analytical like that, I'm gonna say yes, I have enjoyed the first half of the season purely if I ignore Red Bull and Max Verstappen for most of it. There has been some fantastic battles up and down the field. We've seen some interesting people get podiums, certainly people we weren't expecting getting podiums, getting podiums. Um, And there's been some interesting elements beyond just the racetrack coming out of it, the inter-team developments, the way that people are moving around, the growth of teams beyond the racetrack has certainly been one to keep an eye on and kept me entertained in that regard. I'd say... 
Is it our best season yet? No, for me, I think 2021 certainly marks a bit of a high water for having a tight racing battle at the top of the field. But it's not been a dud, but equally it's no 2021, it's no 2012. So we'll have to, it's, it's, it's good. It's been good. I'm going to have to disagree with you and say I think it has been a little bit of a dud. And I am very appreciative, actually, of the fact that we've had a McLaren, had an Aston Martin on the podium, because without that, it would have been absolutely woeful. I just think the quality of the races haven't really been there. I think that, you know, we think about the best race of the season, be it Silverson, in my opinion, and maybe potentially Monaco. If you put them in a, in a good season, for example, I still think those races would rank as potentially more towards the average or poor side. I don't think we've come away from a race thinking that was absolutely fantastic. I don't know if it's anything to do with the battle at the front that makes me think, do you know what? I'm just not bothered about this. If there was a battle at the front, maybe my opinion would change. But I still think that the, the quality of the races, even though we've had, like you say, all those drives on the podium haven't been great. I think Bahrain and Saudi weren't particularly interesting. Baku was a bit of a shocker. Spain was okay. Canada wasn't exactly its usual self. And to be honest with you, Jesse, I didn't think that Spa overall, I think the weekend was interesting because the rain, the sprint and the uh, the rest of it, but the actual Grand Prix itself, I didn't think was that interesting. So I think that certainly it can be improvement in the second half, but I'm not going to discount, like you say, those podium sitters because that is very refreshing for Formula One. And if we can build on that and potentially get better action from that and then fight towards the front. I think F1's in a good place. So it's not disaster zone, but I certainly don't think it's been a good season by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I think when you look at it, we've had eight different podium sitters across the start of the season. It's not been terrible. That's, that's, no, that's good. I'd say in, in recent in recent sort of terms, even 20, I think 2021 was a bit of an outlier. I think we had sort of 13 or 14 in total, but to have eight at the halfway stage um, is very good. That's certainly a positive for my part. I don't see who else would, who we get on the podium, maybe apart from Stroll. I think that boat might have sailed and potentially Ocon. But maybe. We've, we've already had Ocon on the podium. Maybe. Oh, Gas- sorry, I mean, I mean, Gasly. Yeah, sorry, Gasly. We haven't had Science on the podium yet either, and I reckon that could come later. Very true. I, I did forget that. I mean, it's quite a weird thing, as we've had all those podium sitters that signs in a Ferrari isn't one, but then again, he's not had the greatest season either. So, and then again, Piastri as well. So, actually, to be fair, maybe I've misjudged that slightly. We can see potentially, you know, nine, ten, and eleven drives on the podium, which will certainly be a positive. But I couldn't deny this season. Think that'd be one of the better aspects of it. But yeah, it's still going to take me some. It's still going to take some convincing to convince me that it's going to be or has been, sorry, a good season. Yeah, I think there's definitely some interesting bits. I've currently, for interesting reasons, um, got the big year-long sort of 2023 season predictions, which we asked many of our sort of regular guests to come on. We've already blanked one of mine out in red, which means I guess is not happening. Uh, yes, Alpha Tauri to be sold by Red Bull. They've, it's staying in-house for certain. Um, but uh, it, Yeah, it, I, think, I think you can firmly uh, delete that one. But, um, yeah, you never know, 2023 is not done yet. The other one I've had to go through and fill out in red for most people is also the rookie watch where we pinned uh, Sonoda versus De Vries. And I think at this point, we can pretty much cancel De Vries from that competition, which rules out everyone bar uh, the chap who we had on last week, Fraser, who predicted that Sonoda would come out on top. So uh, And you didn't? I didn't, weirdly, despite being a that big is very weirdly. fan. I, I had high hopes for De Vries coming into this season, but uh, I think at the end... 
and what Dumfries was able to do was prove just quite why I enjoy Yuki so much, I think. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know actually what I, I forgot that was a question. I don't know why I went for Dumfries, but I guess with the whole um, with, the, with his Monza outing last year and his, his track record in Formula E and um, Formula 2 for example, maybe that's why and why I went for him and many other, others did as well, so yeah. A lot of people making the same mistake. I do need to go through and tot up at least at the halfway mark who's had the most retirements through the season as well, because I think at this point it was... And it won't be many. I don't think we actually had that many retirements, I can recall. No. So I think we don't have the breakdowns and the reliability that we used to, and there hasn't been that many in-race crashes. No, that when it comes, I'm simply going by who will have the most DNFs. And I think when I last totted it up, we had Charlon 2, Piastri 1, Ocon 2, Albon 2, Stroll 1. I think Russell. maybe one of the Haas drivers might be on three, potentially. Um, I think the Hasses certainly have got a few more to their name at this point. Definitely Magnus and Hulkenberg have picked up another one each since I last adjusted that. So we'll wait and see. But uh, interestingly, no one picked Spa to be a potential favourite race, so I don't have to go through and... What did I pick, out of curiosity? Out of curiosity, Jacob, your favourite race, you predicted Brazil. Uh, It's still yet to happen. It's still going to be the best race. I'm glad I didn't predict any of the uh, first 12, Mm. because probably wouldn't have won. um... Mm. Although you did say for least favourite race, that American one. While I've got you here, can I pressure you for a direct answer? Well, um, Miami was pretty bad, so I guess we'll go with that one. I'm just going to pray that Las Vegas is good. I hope that Las Vegas is better. Or the... Also, how do we judge this? It's based on opinion. I could say that Miami was absolute trash and you could have loved it, but how do we prove otherwise? Um, I don't know. I haven't really figured Unless out. Unless it's Silvers in 2022, and that is obviously objectively one of the better races there's been. But yeah, mm. it's, it's going to be quite hard to... Uh, how are you going to hand out points? That is what I want to know, but I guess that's a question for another day. Yeah, I've also got to go through the bottom five drivers and eliminate Nick DeVries from all of them, or at least anyone who put him any higher than 20th. Um, I hate it when they put in a new driver halfway through the season because it absolutely ruins it, season long. I, I don't like it. No, it's rubbish. I hate it. As a stats head, it is the worst thing. The cynic in me just wants all 20 drivers that start the season to uh, to finish the season to be have a full reflection of how the season went as a whole. Anyway, uh, we'll go back to our predictions for the Belgian Grand Prix because while I scored three points off of judges' adjudication, um, it was also three points for Timo for a Verstappen pole win and Alpine score points, which was apparently his wild prediction. Meanwhile, Ellie May also bags three points for Verstappen pole and win and a Perez second. She could include Piastri does better than Norris as we allowed wild predictions to span the sprint and race last time, but she's being kind as the boys need all the help they can get. Clearly, she's written that note there herself. How kind of her. I would certainly give Timo that point because I think the way the Alpines go at the moment, them scoring points is fairly crazy. So if you're getting the point, I guess Timo is getting the point as well. Yeah, I'll allow it to slide. It seems to sort of pinball from weekend to weekend quite how well um, Alpine do. So that is all we have time for on this week's episode. It feels like we've crammed a hell of a lot in. I know we've been recording for a little while or that or it's just very late in the evening here. Um, But we'll be back after the summer break. I think we've got a few bits and pieces planned in the meantime. I assume. Um, but if you want to find more of us, you can find Ellie May over on our Instagram page where she writes her key takeaways every now and then and also runs our TikTok account. Our latest post is when she attended the Formula E over in London. Jacob, where can the people find you? 
Well, if you can't find me down the local pub, which there's a fair chance that you will be able to, you can find me on Twitter at JacobPhil18. Excellent. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as at Jesse on Cars. And you can also find me writing for Classic Car Weekly. So pick up a copy of that. I've been on holiday for two weeks. I cannot tell you what's in the next issue. So uh, just buy it from your local corner shop and enjoy it. It'll be good regardless. Thank you.